Welcome to another water cooler conversation coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm your host, Nick Cater. Before we begin, I just wanted to invite water cooler listeners to join Australia's 25th Prime Minister, John Howard, for a very special event in Sydney this December. The Menzies Research Centre has the privilege of hosting the John Howard Lecture once a year, the highlight of our events calendar. This year's John Howard Lecturer is Dr Brendan Nelson, a Defence Minister in Mr Howard's Cabinet and a distinguished former Director of the Australian War Memorial. The ninth John Howard Lecture will be held on Thursday, December 16, starting at 6pm at the Wesley Conference Centre in Sydney. Tickets are selling fast, so why not press the pause button now and book yours before you listen to the water cooler conversation at www.menziesrc.org forward slash events. That's www.menziesrc.org forward slash events. And you'll find a link in the notes accompanying this podcast. I'm not afraid to say I'm conservative, but I don't think it's just political conservatism. Some of the the, the most fascinating and interesting and wise voices at the moment, I think, would seem to be coming from a more conservative position in a world which is so in upheaval and lost and deranged. And I think anyone who can hold a steady line and uphold notions of justice and freedom and the value of the individual, I I think that's a very valuable position. I think some of the best voices at the moment come from that perspective. My guest today is Michael Lunick, an Australian cartoonist, writer, painter, philosopher, and poet. His work appears less regularly than it once did in the Melbourne Age newspaper, and we'll explore the story behind that in our conversation, I'm sure. But I want to speak to Michael too about the place of the court jester and the free-thinking spirit in an age when restrictions around humour are becoming increasingly suffocating and the penalties for dissidents are very harsh. Michael, thank you for joining us for this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for, for for the invitation to be here. Yeah, good. Michael, in preparing for this, I, I read a lot about your career. It goes back what, more than 50 years, if you mm. can count your career before that as a, a worker in a meat factory and various other things. And you talk a lot about the different phases in your life. I don't know that we need to go over those unless you want to, but you were yeah. conscripted from <clears throat> Vietnam and that really turned you into a a person strongly opposed to the war and and but that's in a way is history you've talked about that i'm yeah. interested in talking about the lunig under lockdown lunig under lockdown mm. uh, i've been following your cartoons with great appreciation i have to say because you seem to have honed in on what to me is the great loss of freedom and the great surrender that we've had to make to government is that how you see it in Victoria? Yes, that's what's being required. And I think I, I think it's run so contrary to all that our culture and the culture of freedom and the value of a freedom, it's so counter to all that I've grown up with and, and, and appreciated very deeply. And so it's somehow 
incomprehensible, somewhere incomprehensible that this could happen. Where did this come from, this impulse to censor and to repress? And um, where did it come from in Australian culture, uh, political culture, whatever? I mean, repression is a fact of life. We all do it personally, um, somewhat, and in, in groups, in in parts of society it's a natural and we, and we try to be conscious of that and, and and it's a very unhealthy thing i believe it's it's unhealthy what where does the repressed element go to what becomes of what is repressed and um we are watching that at the moment you caught it very neatly i think in one particular cartoon labeled old australia new australia old australia and this is the australia I remember that the Australia that I came to in 1989 as a migrant because it was this kind of country. And it's just simply one of your delightful characters uh, saying, no worries, mate, old Australia, no worries, mate, new Australia. And there's the same character standing chin down in front of a huge sign. Be worried. You are not safe. Enemies, germs, evil. The government is prosecuting you. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. Uh, this is a startling new thing. I mean, there were always people who were very sort of phobic about this thing and that thing and had to keep cleaning their house all the time too too, too closely and worried about germs, etc. That's just a, a part of you know, this kind of neurotic. Uh, and I say that with compassion. It mustn't be very easy to be worried continually about germs creeping in here, there and everywhere, both, you know, actual biological germs or you know, um, the germs, the, the red under the bed or all those idea of the enemy within, etc. This is old stuff in human affairs. But um, uh, I think a cartoonist, amongst many others, should be sort of trying to sh shed some light on this psychological condition because I think it is. It's kind of paranoia and... Um, and 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 being worried about too extravagantly about uh, what happens if you just let nature take its course, you know, human nature. Um, and I'm not talking about a, a wild kind of anarchy or anything. I'm just talking about the healthy freedom, the the freedom that of of individuality, the value of the individual. The unique individual you know we are all unique each one of us we are not statistical creatures we can be turned into that but we are unique and that is very valuable to the way our politics and our culture can be richer i, I think i believe that's the great uh, possibility the individual is 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 a uh, vital to the um, to, to the to the health and the success of the culture fundamental um, but I think this is great what we now see is this lack of uh, autonomy for the individual the sort of surrendering to the collectivist mentality of the state the um, but also the the complete aversion to risk that we seem to have certainly over COVID. Yes. It's, it's, it's been coming a long time hasn't it and I, I thought when I heard when I read about an accident that you had as a child, which you might tell us briefly about, but it, you know, back then the sort of childhood you had growing up in the, I guess the 1950s and, and yes. in the 60s, uh, children 
we, we were like free range children. We were allowed to roam free and, and, uh, and, and we had scrapes and accidents. You had a bad one, which uh, you might tell us about, but in a sense, they, they harden you, don't they? I mean, tell us about your accident. It's extraordinary. It was, yes. Oh, well, simply, I had a great... I lived in um, the western suburbs of Melbourne, which was really on the fringe of all the paddocks, and it, it, there were not many trees. It, it was... There were not many places to, um, you know, to play and beauty and all. There were a lot of rubbish tips because there was a lot of old quarries which became rubbish tips full of toxic things, and there was no supervision of these... Uh, Things and, and for a boy, it was a wonderland. Pieces of junk and oh, discarded bits and pieces of everything of an industrial society, which it was. The western suburbs was where all the industry was, very working class. So um, yes, yeah, so, so I would nothing be better to, to go wandering in a tip and and finding things and then making things, making little billy carts, etc. And so um, it, it was a very creative sort of thing. So, yeah, one day I was with a cousin a bit older than me, just a bit, and I walked in, we walked into a tip, and uh, I, I stood into a concealed, it was a hole in the ground in which rubber tyres had been burned, and there was a, an ash on the top, which just looked like solid ground to me, and I stood in, I went up to my knees in this burning hot coals, and was kind of momentarily trapped there, my cousin pulled me out. I, the, the skin was hanging off my legs like a stocking that had come off, and I was ripping it off in my pain and distress and panic. And uh, it was a frightful, hideous kind of burn. And, um, yeah, he carried me to safety. Uh, it was an amazing effort and carried me and found it found a doctor's surgery open on a Saturday afternoon and it was a horrific burn. So burns injuries are always grotesque, hard to manage. And uh, I was taken in by a young doctor there who was who was just finished his training and he, he took such a, an amazing personal interest in my case. And uh, he even taught me how to walk again for because for about three months I was unable to walk and lay in a bed whimpering while listening to children playing outside in the mm. sunshine. And he, he, he came and he eventually came and taught me how to walk uh, very painstakingly. And then he, he charged nothing to my parents and my mother was mystified and he said, no, I took a risk with that boy. He could have lost two toes. The advice was to amputate a couple of toes. But uh, I, I, I took a risk to save the boy's toes and his walking and all that. So, so there was a beautiful experience in the midst of a horrible thing, you know, the, the sort of the human spirit and kindness and compassion and generosity and, and risk, both mm. my risk, my mother's risk in letting me go and the, the doctor's risk. And, and it all sort of went well, but I do... I do feel sad for my mother, the shock that she must have felt because she was, she was a very, you know, capable mother. But she took a risk. She knew she was taking a risk. Mm. And um, yeah, so I agree. Risk averse, the helicopter parent, the over supervision, the control. I think control. And I, I feel in the current COVID thing, there's some element of that in government about. We must control you for your own good, and uh, there's a point where for a, for your own good becomes a bit of a worry, as if we do not know 
something of of our own good. Maybe we have lost connection with our own good and our own health that it has to be so um, meticulously and rigorously supervised and controlled and enforced. This is very sad. You do so a wonderful these Dan. are the things. Sorry, you do a wonderful Dan Andrews. I was going to say, and um, you know, talking <laughs> of this <laughs> instinct to control. And, and again, I'll, I'll, you know, take the liberty of reading one out to you. Today's pandemic figures, and there you you capture Dan Andrews in a how would I describe that? A, a, a rather sort of uh, hunched scribble of pencil. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that's, that's fair enough. Yeah. Today, today's pandemic figures is a headline to the cartoon. Yeah. Today there were, this is Dan Andrews talking, of course. Today there were 4,000 new cases of people howling at the moon, biting dogs and head-butting lampposts. Sadly, there were 20,000 people who lost their sense of humour. That's so true, isn't it, Michael? And, uh, yes, we can talk about I'm surprised, surprised it was only 20,000 people. It seems like more. Uh, and and so on and and then uh, speaking for my let me just run run to the conclusion Uh, speaking for myself I had a sleepless night three headaches and a terrible pain in the stomach I mean Dan Andrews has that way doesn't he of looking pained and upset himself (laughs) and unfortunately there were those selfish people who did the wrong thing perhaps I was one of them who knows You you end you end it with a trademark question, don't you? You you, you often do that. You raise a question rather than make a statement. Yes, I, I don't like the idea of being con- entirely conclusive with a a sort of a neat and witty punchline which sort of sums it all up and puts it to rest. I I, I can't do that. I mean, I could, but I I if I get to that point, I say no, no. There's more. There's more. There's there's something ongoing in what I have raised. I hope. And so to be inconclusive is is is, is proper for, for for a poet or a, you know this tradition of, um, of awakening things within ourselves and within others. You know we do it when we converse, don't we? It's natural. And, um, and yes, so, so that's been the nature of my cartooning, which has also been more sort of psychological and political. I feel. I, 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 I started out as a strictly political cartoonist, and um, I soon became uncomfortable with that, you know, pointing to the politicians, saying, look, they're the problem. They're causing all, the cause of all uh, our woes. Uh, and I became fascinated in the question of what is our part in all this, meaning, you know, us, the citizens who point the finger. Mm. I think, because uh, I learned this thing as a kid, you know, for every finger you point, there are three pointing back at you. And if you look at, if you if you point with your hand, you in fact see that three of your own fingers are pointing back at you. And I think that's a really important question uh, to balance that between, yeah, it's right to scrutinise and criticise the, the, those who are running the show, if I can put it like that. But it's also interesting to look at your own self. And so. And, and so the, the cartoonist traditionally and at, and, their, and at their best is holding a mirror up uh, to society. Mm. People often think it's been autobiographical, me kind of um, p- p- pushing my, my ideology or something or my belief system. Uh, it's not entirely that. It is holding the mirror up as best I can and saying, look at, look at us, look at us, look at you. Uh, who are you to be pointing 
being such a smart ass, if I can put it like that, because there's been such a growth of that kind of uh, mm. sensibility, you know, being uh, witty and smart ass and, and, and snide, etc., as yeah. some sort of critique of our culture and our society. No, I, I think it's very self-indulgent and, and it gets a lot of applause and wins awards to be like that, but I don't think it's of much value uh, somewhere, and it's more interesting to look at ourselves. So that's kind of a bit psychoanalytic. Understand? You know what's underlying the way we are and what we're doing, and 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 this COVID um, uh, uh, phenomenon. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff uh, below the surface going on. And I'm not just talking about dirty deals behind closed doors. I'm talking about why are people so fearful, so fearful that they can persecute an alleged sort of, you know, a scapegoat person, which might be the person who doesn't want vaccination. What is this need to persecute and to to split society into the good guys and the bad guys? It's... No good seems to come from it. It, it ends in tears, uh, historically, I think. Too much of that division, persecution, blame, uh, and that loss of, you mentioned before, humour. Humour isn't just about a laugh. It's a, it's a very delicate, um, liminal sort of thing. It's, it's, it's a little area between what is serious and what is absurd. Uh, and it's really valuable... Uh, personally, the, the way we find each other, you know, we, the way we find each other in conversation. You watch people get together and soon they are making little jokes, kind of testing each other out, making little, um, um, a little, revealing little obvious contradictions and hypocrisies that we all have. And soon they're laughing a bit. It's a sort of forgiving thing. Uh, humor can be, and I'm talking of this old idea of good humor. You know, to be good humored is 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 important because humor can be very savage and malicious. Um, mm. But 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 I don't like that so much, and um, at all actually. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. I always used to envy the cartoonist, if you like. <laughs> yes. You know, because they could say things that nobody else could say in the paper. And yes. I remember... You know, Bill Leake, my dear friend Bill Leake, telling me once, and this we're probably going back 15 years because you've got to yeah. for this kind of view, that he would never, or once I think there was a serious complaint against his work, but 
by and large, nobody would ever complain because to complain about the way Bill had represented you would be seen as not having a sense of humour, and that that was almost there was nothing worse, you know, to be seen as humourless. So <laughs> yes, yes. Did you experience the same thing? And that that's changed. I mean, now now people complain about cartoons in the most vociferous terms all the time. They do. It's like a kind of a sport. It's it's like a um, it's kind of a form of entertainment maybe it's the coliseum you know the throwing the cartoonists to the lions and everyone cheers or whatever and i'm not saying that in a self-pitying way but i i I think um yes uh the the cartoonist was allowed to say what the journalist was not allowed to say and that was just a tradition and it was accepted and uh, i mean it's not fun and games for the cartoonist because you have to wear a lot of um, stuff from the public and it's a kind of a lonely uh, part of journalism the cartoonist yeah. works alone and with their intuitions and their feelings and at a, at a little desk alone so, so I mean, I mean it's, it's good but it's it's accepted in journalism that yeah, that's what you do that the uh, what is it the the Courchester very ancient mm. very ancient tradition uh, that someone is formally appointed. It's almost like a ritual. You can say it. You are freely. No, no harm will come to you. Although, although a lot of harm does come to you. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm getting pretty old now, and uh, I look back and I think, boy, there's such a lot of. Um, it's a dangerous job in many ways, psychologically or emotionally. You can get hurt uh, in time. It just mounts up. Mm. And 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 the way it is now, it's come to an, an appalling uh, state for me. I think, wow, I'd never thought it would end here, where to make a joke would be so would af- would offend so many people because a joke is by nature ambiguous. A cartoon is a little bit of it's got a lot of flexibility and ambiguity, deliberately so, because ambiguity can sometimes awaken us a bit. Uh, and and so I think the whole era of identity politics, this kind of thing that preceded COVID, you know, um, uh, very righteous sort of tribal groups, if you like, intellectual tribes, as you know, the, all, all the different people who got very grouchy and, and um, and righteous, and were starting to forbid things being said. That it, the necessity to take offence—it was a kind of a way of feeling enlivened. I think when people get angry, they get very focused and very energised. And I think this anger became a source of. I don't know, validation. With, you know, I think an angry mob has a lot of power. And uh, mm. so there were all these little sort of power groups everywhere tearing strips off each other. Or the free thinker, the free thinker who, who expresses a, a kind of uh, an improbable truth or, or just a truth uh, could be lynched. Well, you know, metaphorically, and and so um, so that became a kind of a I don't know a, a preoccupation a, a trend or something in, in in how society behaves how people behave watching out there's hyper vigilance for 
a transgression. You use that word, you know, whatever that word is. That is a... Yeah. And, and so we're back to the, the sort of sectarian thing that we saw in Northern Ireland and, you know, in Ireland and, you know, the Protestants and the Catholics, savage stuff and, 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 and horrific atrocities committed this, this sectarianism. So we've got this sectarianism going all over again. And we now have, uh, we are now being, bla- our hatred or our hatred, I'm talking, when I say our, I'm talking about within our culture, I think hatred has found a new energy because it became difficult to hate in the old way. You know, you couldn't hate homosexuals anymore or or black people or good, you know. Uh, there was a lot of prejudice around. There has been. And I think this left human nature wanting uh, something to hate. It's as if it's part of the human condition. And it was getting difficult to find someone to hate because someone would come down heavy on you, quite rightly so, I think, mm-hmm. in some respects. But it's as if suddenly COVID is here and at last we've got a health reason to sort of leverage all our hatred again. And and now we can hate, you know, whoever, the unvaccinated or whatever. I, I don't know, the earnestness, the dire kind of panic uh, uh, is is extraordinary and and as you say um, it's easy to say well, what's where's the backbone of the culture where 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 is this resilience that they talk about where is it mm. where is the courage where where is you know the enjoyment of some risk uh, it's an enlivening quality to tread a path which is not all neat and comfortable for us. It's, it brings out some wonderful things in us to to take a risk. Yeah. To yeah to live with a few snakes and crocodiles and sharks is not so bad. And sure, we lose a few along the way, but I mean we all get lost along the way eventually. Oh, that seems a bit flip, but you know what? I hope you understand I what do, I'm saying. I do. Absolutely, I do, and. Um... I like your reference to, to crooked, wobbly lines. Is a wonderful um, trigger <laughs> warning, I guess, on one of your recent cartoons. Warning, this cartoon contains crooked or wobbly lines, which some <laughs> some viewers may find offensive. Um, look, yes. I want to go to... Um, I, mean, I, I think the point to make here is, remind ourselves of here, is how quickly we've gone down this path. And, and just to illustrate that... Um, I went back to listen to an interview you did with Jane Hutchins at the ABC in 2017, which is, what, yes. only four years ago. Mm. And and I'm just going to play you a 30-second clip, clip, if I can, and, and just yeah. listen to that. Michael, I'm dying to know, as a cartoonist, does your editor tell you what he'd like to see, or do you have a complete free reign? Oh, these days are... I suppose it's a free reign. They've given up on me, and I think... <laughs> When you're older than the editor, things change a bit, and I seem to be older than everyone, including the President of America and the Prime Minister of Australia, so freedom, I think. Yeah, they leave me alone. So what happened? (laughs) What happened? I don't know. I think there's a lot of envy involved. Anyone who's free and they're not 
nailed down and inhibited and under regulation is a, is an object of envy to a lot of people. How dare you be free? What you you the privilege? You know, check your privilege. All these kind of things are thrown at you. And you think, hang on, uh, it's not it's not easy to be free. You, 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 it, it's a lot of work and a lot of kind of. There's a con- there are consequences, but these are consequences I bear and I value. And um, so I think that's a thing. I was I was perceived as getting away with something. I think in the new this new cultural climate of of um, this kind of science fascination and statistics and evidence and data. You know, this is what we've come. Goodbye, humour. Hello, data. And mm. And so, if if I'm seen as a dinosaur for, for by the, the the woke so-called woke people, um, because I'm a privileged old white male or something, whatever they're throwing at, me. They, they don't. None of these people who say that know anything about me personally. They're not yeah. interested. I can't get a conversation out of any of these people. Uh, they just sort of describe me. But I think there's a resentment that I am I am seen perhaps. As a free spirit, well, who's a free spirit? That ain't easy. But I do value this part of human, uh, of being a human being. I, I think it's our duty to to become, um, you know, fully, uniquely ourselves. I think I, I think it's what. Well, I don't know about the meaning of life, but it seems to be a very important. A part of life, or it is life itself, to love life and to to become fully self with all our peculiarities and differences. And I'm obviously talking about that which lies within reasonable law. But um, but 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 I don't know. I, I think people have shrunk back from being fully human, and and. I, I think university education has not necessarily helped anyone. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, in, in that regard, um, I, and I have every respect for a university education, by the way, but but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering this conformity of thinking and even lately I've become rather shocked to realise or to think about what gives an editor or a journalist or uh, the privilege, the, 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 the qualification to decide what is important to publish? What should we know about? What should society have shoved down its throat or presented to it? It's always narrow. It always eliminates so much of reality. But each day... We look at these stories and somewhere someone has said this matters and I and this is what the, the public must take in. I mean, this is spoon feeding. And when you think about life, it's so wide and astonishing and miraculous. Uh, here I am in the country looking out over a valley in a forest and, and there's butterflies and birds flying around. Now, this, this could like sound like old hippie nonsense, but it's actually true and it's traditional mm. that people, the philosophers, the poets, have always been profoundly moved by this mystery 
and this life-giving mystery, you see. And so, and then you look at media and what's become of media. It's been, you know, it's been dumbed down. It's been narrowed. It's been made boring, basically. And well, um, yeah, I mean, you'd say that that. that, that what is it that gives editors, journalists, you know, the right or the, I guess, the brilliance to be able to say this, this is what should be said about the world today. But what gives them the right to say this should not be said? And and that's where well, yes. I think that I, I can't think of any other word for it other than censorship, which has just become part of media very quickly during lockdown. I, I suppose I'm supposed to refer to your your cartoon as your now notorious now notorious cartoon but i'm not going to do so i thought it was a very good cartoon tell, tell me about the yeah. cartoon where that that brought all this to a head in your relationship with the age describe it and then tell me what happened oh now i, I i'm i imagine you're talking about this thing of a a, 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 a tank that was a, a, a a sort of a rendering of that Tiananmen Square thing where the man stood mm. in front of the yeah. tank and was faced with the tank. Now, to me, that's a real classic uh, depiction, regardless of the specifics of that thing. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more of it as an allegorical thing, as a metaphor, for the lone individual is confronted by the overwhelming force and power of the state, and in the tension between those two things, the tank and the man, well, it's it's almost a Charlie Chaplin situation. The lone individual faces a monstrosity. And what then happens is either a tragedy or something hilarious. Like, like um, Chaplin would make, in one bound he was freed. Something hilarious would happen, etc. So it's an eternal problem the lone individual, the loneliness of the individual that we all are when we wake at 3 a.m. in the morning and with our our sorrows, feeling overwhelmed, that's the lone individual. And and then there's the state in all its organisation and it's all its power and its might and its law and its certainty. And uh, that fascinates me, that tension and, and that thing we face. And and so that was the cartoon, you know, and I was just depicting the tank. Now the gun became a, a hypodermic, a needle pointing at the individual who looked blank and perplexed or very vulnerable. Now, uh, yes, this was hated, this cartoon, but I was simply trying to depict the feelings of the voiceless, the powerless person who's faced, who, for instance, a person who conscientiously and intelligently does not want to go on with this vaccine experiment in their body. It, 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 it's a conscience thing. It, it's mm. a deep conscience thing for many people. And they're not selfish lunatics who don't care about the world. They do care about the world, as far as I can see, and I know many of them. I know many of them, and um, so, so I wanted to, to just to show how they feel. We know how the majority feel. The majority have all the voice. The majority have all the media. I'm interested in the minority. The minority has a great value to me. The improbable voice, the outsider voice, 
the outside the outsider intelligent voice i mean some of our great historical figures who've inspired humanity have been sort of outsiders in a way they've been lone thinkers and they've suffered from that uh, and their contribution has been enormous and they have inspired many they're not from the majority in, in some respects nothing wrong with the majority we're all sort of some part of some majority here there or everywhere but you you understand what i'm saying i, I think I the, do. Value, I mean, the, the, the great yeah. the great liberal philosophers uh, who, who crafted our great liberal democracy or the principles behind it um, talked about you know the problems of majoritarianism you know that the, yes. the view of the majority becomes uh, a tyranny in itself and it doesn't allow people to make individual um, decisions or opinions and and I, and I think that's exactly where we are now with vaccine well, we, mandates isn't it exactly but i think increasingly modern life has become a source of anxiety it moves at such a speed it, the changes become incomprehensible and bewildering I think the, the general level of anxiety in the population is much higher than it knows or could be measured. Um, and I, I think people carry a, a sort of a lot of fear in their bones, whether it's conscious or not. I think there's a tension in modern society because uh, it's, 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 it's getting hard to live in a particular modern way the technology, the the speed, the pressure, the tension is, is is overwhelming to people. And so they're fearful. And as Eric Fromm, that great um, uh, sort of psychologist in the 30s and 40s, 50s, uh, I'm talking about the 1930s, 40s, obviously, but um, he, he made this observation that when people are fearful they can they start to conform they start to turn to authoritarianism and then this turns to destruction this the ultimate the outcome is a destructive impulse and and so this and he said it's about people not being able to have a life or or live a true life as distinct from a prescribed conformist life and there's a great resentment and tension builds up in humanity if it can't be free and i'm just talking about that reasonable natural freedom that i see the birds and the butterflies right there in front of me right now having you know i, I mean i've been criticized for being this kind of regressive person who wants to go back to nature like a mad hippie and you know, keep bees and all that sort of thing. Well, if I did, that, what's wrong with that? That's, that's not a bad uh, life, I guess. But um, so, you know, conformity turns to authoritarianism, turns to a kind of anger and of this repression of not having a life. Mm. Uh, mm. And then, mm. then there's a scapegoat, and then someone's to blame, and then there's destruction. And we saw it, you know, all the classic times in history. We saw it, the rise of totalitarianism in various countries. Mm. And uh, yeah. I, I think we're watching, it's not too extreme to suggest that we're, there's a similarity to what is happening now. And it always takes 
the culture by surprise. People are saying, where did this come from? We didn't think that. We thought we were good blokes. We were nice people. And then suddenly there's this, oh, this kind of malice and punitive kind of impulse and round people up, prevent them, take their rights away. That'll learn them, you know. It's kind of very primal, very primal, very tribal. You know, I I guess you're right. It catches us all by surprise, and I've been surprised here in Australia how quickly we've fallen into this way yeah. of thinking, more more in some places than others. But I think what's what's really struck me is that the institutions that we thought would guard against this are not. And principally, you know, the the the, the place I worked for most of my career, as of you, in journalism, in newspapers. I mean, the, the Melbourne Age was a always, always a crusading newspaper that that would 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 stand yep. up and and uh, you know, 1967. It, it yep. was instrumental in 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 speaking out against the hanging of Ronald Ryan, yes. and and helped the movement that led to the abolition of the death penalty. Uh, we could go on and on about that, but but now under this, I don't want to criticise your paper too heavily, but because it's not alone in this, but it just seems to have been intent on taking the government line on things like vaccinations, on um, on lockdowns, and um, it's been very timid in its criticism of those things. And in, in the case of your cartoons, as seems to me, is it going well, too far to say they're censoring you? Y- yes. Well, I mean, uh, earlier this year, I had 12 cartoons in a row like censored week after week and just and without explanation that was the other yeah. thing i couldn't get I, I, i'm happy to consider guidelines of saying look we can't go there because do you know what that does for a cartoonist that says okay i'll address it but i'll fly either under the radar or over the radar i'll i'll do a little allegory about what's happening and the, the the editor might say, "Oh, he's not being too blatant." And uh, in fact, I don't know what he's saying here, uh, <laughs> but I'll, it seems harmless enough. But so I had twelve in a row, and it was it was just like, "No, we can't run this." And you think, well, normally up until then, an editor there's always the courteous um, discussion. I'm sorry, Michael, we can't do this. Uh, why not? Well, because blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes they'd be looking after you and saying, look, you're going to get crushed. They're going to come after you. And sometimes I've been thankful for a bit of advice from a sub-editor or an editor. And But, but this is a new thing. It's just a kind of arrogant, uh, if I may say, this is how it appears to me. I'm, I don't want to point this at the editor in particular, but someone's got to take responsibility. And I think it seems to be this certitude that this is how it is it's it's you know the arrogance of power journalists have a lot of power as the poet les murray once said to me he said they've got so much power but they don't get elected they should have to stand for election and i think journalism has become corrupted and incredibly arrogant and it's become riddled with identity politics that seems so twee and not relating to the life of the people if I can use that old concept of the people you know, the the, the people out there in the factories and the farms as Malcolm Fraser used to say 
um, people with feet on the ground who aren't university educated but have got huge common sense and a great sense of of life and the history of this country in their own way. They they left out of the equation. They're not considered. We, the papers are more and more speaking to a very narrow band. I don't know how they survive. And in fact, I don't think they are surviving, mm. quite frankly. Mm. But um, well, they're losing but, touch with their readers in the sense that your you know your calendar, which uh, I don't know if you're still yeah. asked, used to. I mean, I I edited the Weekend Australian for a long time, and we always knew that the weekend that the Age printed your calendar, they it would sell its socks off. So you know, that's... yes, apparently, yeah, that's it. And and the odd thing is that I've been like sent to the bad boys' room or whatever. I've been you know penalised, but they somehow still depend on things like the calendar or you know i talk about all the hostility i receive but what i don't mention is the massive amount of support that comes to me day in day out and or and has for a long time and i'm not just in it for the support i know i'm controversial i'm not and quite quite strangely let me say the most con- controversial or troubled uh, the cartoons that cause most trouble I've been completely unaware while I'm doing the cartoon that this could be a problem. So it always mm. catches me surpri- by surprise. It generally catches me surprise. I'm not out to hurt or upset people. Honestly, I'm treating it uh, like I'm an artist who's discovering something, you see, or, or a philosopher who's, who's, who's holding up a contradiction a life-giving contradiction, might I say, a juxtaposition of, of ideas. And and I think I'm doing a good thing. And lo and behold, all hell breaks loose. Mm. I mean, do, do you realise, I was once in a, a room, a tiny room, an office at The Age, with a, a senior cartoonist named Les Tanner, who was a dear friend, now mm. gone. Les and I used to have a coffee at about 10 a.m. in the morning. I, I'd go to his little office... He was undoing his mail, and he stopped and he said, "My goodness, what's in this?" There's an, a Manila envelope, a large Manila envelope. He he sort of let it lay there and just opened it and held it open. And I looked in and I saw wires, I saw uh, odds and ends, bits bits of wire, rubber band twisted around something. And um, uh, anyway, cut a long story short, uh, it was a bomb. It was a bomb. It, it, it was a letter bomb, and the, the security guy at the age dismissed it. We insisted he call the police. The police saw it, called the Army Bomb Squad. The Army Bomb Squad told us it mightn't have killed us, but it would have blown our hands or our face off. And and it was a, it was a kind of a technology that had come into Australia from South Africa where it had been used extensively during the troubles there. And, and yeah, so that's what can happen. And I don't think that's an... And, of course, it wasn't reported because, like, suicides and things like that, you, 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 didn't, you couldn't put that in the news. But it was a most dramatic, hor- horrible thing. And it was a lesson to me, uh, or just a little caution, don't underestimate what is out there, what is out there. Uh, how did I get into this? I don't know, but <laughs> I find myself talking about a very traumatic moment, which has been very sobering, 
and um, and it, it does sort of it's an example of what lies in hidden in society, and we are talking about this at yeah. the moment. Yeah, the things, the the, the repressed anger, the, the, the destructiveness, the, the desire to control. To divide, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's, it's we're watching it now. I think it's a very special moment in our history, and I'm very fascinated to know how it shall be looked back upon. How retrospect will look at this time. Two two questions before we, we wrap up. Thank you so much for your time. The first, I've I've avoided, and I think you have, using the term left and right throughout this yeah. whole conversation because, sure, I I don't know what you you think, but I think it's a completely uh, you know, less and less helpful way of describing what's going on. But your critics, and I've heard them, that will say, oh, well, the trouble with Lunik is he's he's gone left to right. You know, he's moved from being a decent <laughs> lefty who protested against the Vietnam War and so forth into somebody, you know, who supports uh, anti-vaxxers or whatever. You know, that, that, that that's the way they portray things. Do you see that you've made that political journey or is it something above no. or outside that? No, I, I can't see that. I, I, I mean, I, I, people are very keen to um, categorise each other and they use terms like anti-vaxxer. What does it mean? I'm not sure what that means exactly. Um, uh, or left, what does left mean? I I grew up in a, in a, in a kind of, as I say, a working class, a hard working class background, which... Which had a kind of a, oh, I don't, I don't know. It, it was labour voting back then. You know, people who worked with their hands voted labour, sort of thing. And I, I didn't think of it as a left or right. It was just um, where I was. And then the Vietnam War came, and I, I got my conscription notice, etc. And of course, I was. I, I thought that war was sad folly. And um, you know the Anzus com- uh, tree we dragged into it, etc. You know, my good friends were dragged into it, and I was treated. I resisted strongly. Uh, I resisted, and I was called every sort of coward and selfish person, taking advantage of other men who were prepared to go, etc., etc. It, it was like that. So that was an awakening thing, and so that that would have put me in the left camp, according to people who categorised. But I've never felt. I've always felt sympathy for the so-called right or the so-called left. I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I'm like an anthropologist as much as I am a psychologist. I'm, I'm curious in what people find of value and how they live and what they believe. I don't want to fight them. I don't. I, I want to listen to them. I like the pluralism. I like that if there are sides, let them engage with each other in a respectful sort of way, in in a passionate way. But so I I, I haven't. I don't think I've changed any. I've just developed. I hope. I hope I've matured. It's a lifetime's work. Mm. And, and well, I, you I, sound, I, sound to me, Michael. I wish to uh, put a label on you, but in 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 talking about somebody who's an outsider who stands up for you know, ordinary people who who don't have a voice. Uh, you sound like a perfect Robert Menzies liberal in defence of the forgotten people. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 this could be so, but that doesn't... I mean, Robert Menzies' name in my grandmother's house 
was dirt for for, for reasons. And my, my, my sweet, gentle grandma used to listen to the radio. This is back in the 1950s. And she hated Menzies, but this was just her peculiar thing. So I, I, I grew up thinking, oh, you know, Mr. Menzies was uh, somehow bad. But as I've got older, I've understood the so-called conservative position very very well because people say you're just a conservative. I say yes. Well, we're all conservatives. I like that. You know, um, I can go to the shop and buy a loaf of bread. I don't want that to change. <laughs> you know, an intelligent conservative. We are naturally like it. I think we we're not into chaotic, frenetic change for its own sake. We you have to. We we need a reliability. A cultural reliability, and and I I think I'm, a lot of my friends are profoundly conservative in that old-fashioned depiction of conservatives, and I've always been drawn to them, and I'm just as I'm drawn to people who are of another persuasion. I think they're human. They're my people. You know, they're my people. I I, I love them all, sort of, and detest them all too from time to time. But yeah, I, I, I'm not afraid to say I'm conservative, but I'm, I'm, I don't think it's just political conservatism. I, I did a, I did a, a cartoon questioning this anti-Trump hysteria, for instance. Now it doesn't mean to say I'm a full-on Trump fan, or whatever I was. But I think, hang on, just listen. Just let the, a lot of people voted for the man. Um, isn't that a natural thing to do? To just bear with, to bear each other's differences, in 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 the hope that everyone's got a bit of the truth. You know, everyone's yeah. got different bits of the truth, and and when you pull it together, maybe wisdom uh, can arise. But no, I'm I'm some of the the, the most um, fascinating and interesting. And wise voices at the moment, I think, would seem to be coming from a more conservative position in a world which is so in upheaval and lost and deranged and kind of this old thing, the world is going mad. Well, yes, it is. And it always was, but it, now it's it's got its own unique madness. And I think anyone who can hold a steady line and uphold notions of justice and freedom and the value of the individual i i think that's a very valuable position and and i i think some of the best voices at the moment come from that perspective michael thank you very much for joining us for this podcast conversation thank you it's been a pleasure and uh, and, and, and I, I value it very much thank you listening to another water cooler conversation from the Menzies Research Centre. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars and tell your friends about it. And you can support us by becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org and click on the subscribe button. I'm Nick Cater for the Menzies Research Centre.